0: Shalom, shalom. Welcome to another episode of God's Little Hummingbird a podcast where we are reading through the Bible from the beginning to the end using the original language as our guide. Today, very early at 3 in the morning, we are in Joshua and we are in chapter 5 today. We are reading from the New King James Version Bible. And if you don't have that Bible, remember you can find it for free. Online at the um, you can either put it on your phone or just go to the website blue letter Bible Bible Hub or any of those so I pray Father God opens our eyes, ears and hearts to you and let us begin so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Do you ever notice how some of these things, the, the, the pictures and the analogies that we're given, are really, really interesting to think about? Their hearts melted. If you were strong and courageous, of course your heart would be brave and bold hear their hearts melted, and of course they didn't physically melt, <laughs> but isn't that an interesting analogy? The other thing I want you to think of is this when we see the word in he- see Hebrew is a very circular language, whereas Greek is very linear. when you have the Shoresh, which is the three consonant root of a Hebrew word it can be, it, that root will be all the adjective, the verb the noun, the adverb, all parts of speech. And so it can mean so many things depending on where it is placed in relation to the subject, the verb, whatever, in the sentence. And so when we see the word all in Hebrew, one of the things, I guess I just want to point out, so those are some differences, correct? Typically in English, you do conjugate a word, and it can mean both an adjective, verb, sometimes. But in Hebrew, it happens all of the time, and so there's differences in the Hebrew language. I guess is what I'm trying to point out. And when they say the word "all," it is not this linear Greek thought of well, all means everything all the time. All literally. In 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 Hebrew, you'll read a lot of places where it says. Like you may all, all um, things are for food for you. But like when Noah came off the ark, all flesh, well, we know he could not eat human. We know he couldn't eat the unclean foods. It made a distinction right there in the book of Genesis that he took seven clean and two unclean. Not seven pairs, but seven clean animals and two unclean animals of each group. He knew the difference between clean and unclean because he was walking with the father so when you have the recall here which means all it literally is it it doesn't mean every single one it means like the great part of them okay or um, thus declaring when um, even to the Hebrew when, when Yeshua you know they're saying thus declaring all foods clean now they translated that in Greek because the Hebrew scripts were burned because the name Yahweh was used with Yeshua. But it's not that all things were clean. We knew that there were still poisonous plants. We knew you could not eat poop. (laughs) You You know, there's so many things. So to a Hebrew, when you say all, they're thinking more metaphorically, and they're not assuming you mean every single thing. So I want you to keep that in mind, that Hebrew traditional language is so different from a Greek thought. Yeshua's parables and his... Demonstrations with words and his, his, they they over exaggerate things a lot, and they they don't mean per- particularly what they say. And I know people who are very analytical at times can struggle with that. But to get in the Hebrew mindset, you have to understand that they speak big, they over exaggerate things. We say things we don't say it literally. We speak very much in a form of pictures and metaphorically in those types of situations. So remember that when we're reading the scriptures. Verse two, at that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, this isn't, some people, again, may confuse that. This doesn't mean the same man is to be circumcised the second time. This is talking about the second group of Israelites who were raised up in the wilderness. And we'll prove that in, you know, the, a few verses here. But if you, (laughs) I want you to point out something. I want to point out something here. They're circumcising themselves, not with medicine, not with doctors. They are, I'm sure the priests or some of the leaders were circumcising the men because I'm sure it would be hard to do to yourself, (laughs) And they got the charev, which are the knives. The And they're circumcising these men, cutting off that foreskin. So I just want to point out, because we've been witness to many circumcisions, um, and, and there's no doctor involved. There's no medicine. The process is slightly painful for the child, just for a moment. And because they're on the eighth day being circumcised, they don't have much cognition. They don't consider much of what's going on. But I believe it's more of a lesson for the parents to raise that child up against the flesh that's in his heart, right? And it's a reminder to the father to remove that worldly pleasure-seeking flesh so that he can focus on the things of Yahweh. And so in the Hebrew it um it doesn't actually say the word flint that I have found. It says sharp knives. So um I guess flint maybe just an indication there or something they were used to or something they they knew to be sharp. But they just took knives and circumcised themselves in, in mostly Most people I know, they just pull the skin down and um, (laughs) snip. And I just want to encourage you, if you have a child and are following Torah, and of course you're trying to follow the scriptures where we're not to use medicine or seek man, so we would never seek a doctor, it says to go to the priests, right? It says to have them anoint us with oil, to confess our sins, to pray. I just want to encourage you, be bold, be brave circumcise your sons in honor of the father's commands and as a sign to yourself to raise that child up against his flesh and to live by the spirit so i will keep reading now and i'm sorry for the groggy voice i haven't talked to anyone yet because it's like three in the morning so three something i should say anyway Verse three. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins. So they literally called that Gibeah Harot. So mountain of the foreskins, hill of the foreskins, I should say. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. And I have to wonder at this. And maybe you understand something you can share with me. I do not know why they were not obeying this command in the wilderness. I just, I don't. I don't understand if it was rebellion. Or if it was a lack of understanding. Or if it, or what? Because, they, you know, Moses circumcised them at the beginning and now 40 years later they get circumcised again. So I'm assuming they stopped eating pork <laughs> right away and shellfish and doing those pagan things and the sinful things. I, But why this? And the picture I do see in it is that the people in the wilderness, those, those people that had complained and not believed Yahweh, we're we're still in sin and i guess i can see a picture right now with Yahweh's people as we're coming out of egypt for the last 20 some years with this hebrewitz movement and back to the torah back to the father there's still a lot of sin in people and yes i think we're supposed to i know we're supposed to physically be circumcised but i see a lot of spiritual uncleanness still on the people that I can see that in the wilderness they still had so much flesh and sinfulness that here when they entered the promised land, this spiritual place, physical place, both of rest and obedience, that perhaps this was a sign that, okay, now, come on, let's try again. Let's get our flesh off. I brought you out of Egypt, but you had so much flesh on you still. Now let's try again. We're actually in the promised land. I don't know. That's just some thoughts I'm having. Please feel free to share with me your thoughts, because I really do wonder about that. Verse 6. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed, because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh, to whom Yahweh swore that he would not show them the land which Yahweh had sworn to their fathers, that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, I do have to wonder. Maybe it was just the hard hearts of those people. Because they rebelled against Yahweh. They did not obey the voice of Yahweh. Maybe that was it. Verse 7. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place. For they were were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. Boy, I bet they were hoping their parents had done it on day 8. Because as a grown man, I'm sure it hurts a lot worse. But as a man, when you have walked in fleshly ways and you turn your life back to the Father, how much sweeter is the grace? A child raised in Torah, way better, right? I mean it's way better to never to be raised in Torah and know the ways of Yahweh from day, you know, from birth, and so on day eight, when they don't feel much, from that moment, just raise them. But if you walk away and have to return and be circumcised, or you were raised the wrong way, I bet you feel it a little bit more. You feel the cutting of that flesh because you're older. You've had more experience with it. It's a really interesting picture. Verse 8. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then Then Yahweh said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal, or rolling to this day. So, I don't. I did not look into this, and I guess I should have, but I think it's interesting that the word there is rolled away, the reproach. Rolled it away. He didn't take it away. He rolled it away. So, let's look into that. Somebody, <laughs> I'm going to look into it. I just find that interesting. Like, why would he roll it away? Um... And, and I honestly have... I don't know. That's interesting. So let's look into it. Verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Now, remember, twilight is the darkness between sunset and when the sun is completely black, okay? So, um yeah, I just... If you remember, it's called Ben in Hebrew, usually. And it's right between... Twilight is like... So the sun sets behind the hills, and then the earth becomes dark but not black. You can still see. There's usually 30 or 40 minutes that that happens. So that's when this was happening. I, I, I love that. I just think it's a neat picture. Um... And I don't know why, but I just think it's neat. It's between the sunset and the actual sunset. So they kept the Passover at the place where the reproach was rolled away, at Gilgal. It's kind of neat. So they were circumcised there. They entered the land on the 10th day. They were circumcised there, and they kept the Passover. So remember, on the 10th day, they would take the lamb and inspect it. That's the day Yeshua went into Jerusalem. So all these pictures are coming together. Listen to um, the, other, the previous podcast if you don't know what I'm talking about, the 10th day. Verse 11, and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Now some people, I think this is why some people get thrown off, and we've talked about this way back um, in Leviticus when we talk about the Feast of first fruits. So the feast of first fruits, you don't eat parched grade until you bring your first fruit offerings. Feast of first fruits must always be on a Sunday, and I can prove that because the Torah says that feast of Shavuot must fall on the day, the day after the seventh Sabbath. Okay, so what's the day after the Sabbath? The Sunday. Right? A Sabbath is always Shabbat Saturday. There's no other yearly Sabbath during the week of Shavuot. So we know the Shavuot must fall on the day after the day. Not a few days, not a middle in the week, a day in the week. The day after the weekly Sabbath. So that is a Sunday or the first day of the week, Yom Rishon. You count back 50 days, you will always get to another Sunday. In this situation, it is highly likely that Feast of First Fruits, I'm sorry, the Passover, coincided with a weekly Sabbath. Because the Passover is the 14th of Abib, the end of the 14th, so at the end of the 14th day. So whenever the 14th is, it's at the end of that day. Because they eat it as the 15th day is beginning. We've gone over this back in the Torah. So it is most likely that this year, Passover, this particular year we're reading about Passover fell on Shabbat. Therefore, during the middle of that week is when... We know the Feast of First Fruits is because it happens on the day after the Sabbath. It does not happen on the day after Passover. It happens on the day after the weekly Sabbath, linking it to the Feast of Shavuot, like we just talked about. Since we know the Feast of First Fruits is 50 days before the Feast of Pentecost, Shavuot, and it's always a Sunday because 50 days before a Sunday is always another Sunday. Right? And so this year, particularly that we're reading about, I believe the Passover probably was on a Shabbat, a weekly Shabbat, because then they ate the parched grain the next day, and they began their festival. So here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first day of the feast, would have coincided with the Feast of first fruits, and this does happen, because we never know what, you know, the Feast of Passover sometimes will be on a Wednesday, sometimes a Thursday, sometimes a Saturday, sometimes a Sunday, right? I hope that made sense in the calendrical explanation. Verse 12. This is neat. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So they went into the promised land. They began eating more nourishing, more um, a variety of food. They got food of the promised land. They didn't have to have the food of humbling anymore. Because it was the bread of affliction. It was, it was to humble them, to test them. So they would not lust for these foods But when they had crossed over and were in that place of obedience, then they were given that food. Have you ever had that? Have you ever wrestled with the Father on an issue and as soon as you let go of it, then He gives it to you? (laughs) Once your place entered the place of obedience and submission, isn't that neat to think about? Then He gives you what He couldn't give you when you still lusted. Because there was sin in your heart, that he couldn't give that blessing on you because you weren't ready to receive it in the proper way. That's how I view it. And I think it's neat. So there's no longer need for this manna. Manna, what is it? They could now enjoy the food. Verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you... For us or for our adversaries? Now, when you look and see that the word man there is the word man. It's ish. So it doesn't mean some spiritual body, but we're going to learn it was. But I want you to see that he did physically see a man. And he asked him, are you for us or for for our adversaries? And I love the response. So he, being this man who is Yeshua, said, no, but as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Whenever an angel is sent that is not Yeshua, they do not bow and worship. Any time it's Yeshua, you will see they can bow and worship. Yeshua met Moses in the bush. What we see is that the physical manifestation of the Father whom we can see because no one has seen the face of the Father and lived. We're told that in the Bereshachah, the Renewed Covenant. But we have seen the Son. He walked on this earth. We can see Him. And did you notice that He was not for Joshua and Israel? And He was not for the adversaries. He was for Yahweh. The word commander there is Sar, which can mean prince, leader, ruler, commander. He's the prince of the army of Yahweh. He is the leader, and who are the armies of Yahweh? The children of Israel. He's their leader. But he's not for them, he is for Yahweh. So remember that. We get very high and mighty in our mind. And we get out of place. And we say things like, "Yahweh's for us. And in one respect, he is. He wants us to succeed. On that level, the word for would apply there. He is in favor of, is a better word to use. He desires and hopes for that. If we are treated wrongly and afflicted by the enemy, believe me, He will step in and judge. And sadly, I have seen that happen. Where people miss, they speak, well, yeah, they've spoken lies about me, whatever, um, mistreated me, whatever. I've seen them judged. I don't like seeing that. I know I'm not worthy. Yahweh is just enacting righteousness. And if I have done something to somebody, I have been judged. In righteousness. Discipline taught a lesson. But who is Yahveh, Who is Yeshua truly for? He is for the Father. If you sin, you will get spanked. If you obey, you will get blessed. He is not going to honor you before the Father. He is always going to honor the Father. So He doesn't... I hope that makes sense. And it comes from a humble, a humble place in your heart, being able to accept this, realizing, right, he's not, he doesn't, how do I say the word? But he is not going to just take my side. I literally just prayed, Father, give me the word, and he just told me that. He's not going to take my side. He's not going to take your side. And he's not going to take the enemy's side. He will only stand up for anything that is truth. So if we choose to be on the side of Yahweh. And we join Yahweh's army. Then he'll lead the way for us. Because he is fighting for the father, Yahweh. When you understand that. When I, when I first read this in 2002. Well, with new eyes. It made so much sense to me. And put me in my place. And I really understood that he's never going to take my side. He's going to take the side of truth and righteousness and holiness. And therefore, I need to make sure that I don't defend myself, my ways, my opinions, my truths. I need to be fully founded and found, um, rooted in Yahweh so I just stay with him. Because if I step outside of his army, his 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 way, his path, his truth, then I put myself against Yeshua, who has to punish me. He's not going to take my side. He's going to take Yahweh's side at all times. So if I choose to step outside of obedience, and I hate my brother, let's say, guess what? All of a sudden, I find myself face to face with Yeshua coming at me, going to teach me. It is for my good, to turn me back and get me in line in the ranks. But he is not going to take my side. Ever. And as a parent, if you understand that, you will never take anybody's side. As a mediator, as a as a friend, uh, anybody, as a spouse, you're never going to take anybody's side. Simply seek the truth in Yahweh. Love everybody but do not take a side. Be loyal to Yahweh. So if the person is following Yahweh, then you can rightly be with that person. David, Absalom, I'm sorry, Absalom rebelled against David. So the priests who stayed faithful to what was of Yahweh and honored David as king were the ones who were blessed. They did not take David's side. They took Yahweh's side. And those who joined to Absalom Fought against Yahweh's will, therefore, they took Satan's side and found themselves confronted by the Tsar, the commander of the armies of Israel. That to me is powerful. If you can grasp that, you will have such a more humble spirit than you've ever had, and it's going to be awesome. Verse 15. Then the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy, and Joshua did so. Interesting, he tells him to take only one sandal off. If you read the story of Ruth, we see Boaz exchanged they exchanged sandals. If a man didn't honor his brother's wife, he had to remove his, she removed his sandal. Moses had to remove his sandals. There are so many conjectures about what this could mean. But I would assume if it had anything to do with the uncleanness of the sandals being animal skins, that he would have had to remove both sandals. Could this have been a typo? Could somebody have forgotten something when they were um, writing it? Absolutely. But it literally does say singular sandal. I'm not sure why. (laughs) I honestly don't have a... Have a reason. But some, because if it was truly about grounding yourself and being firm with the earth, both sandals would have been removed, like Moses had to. It was one sandal. One sandal. And the ground was holy because Yahweh was there. The ground is holy means set apart different. different. Some people say there was poop and all this stuff on the shoes. And we, to this day, when we enter people's homes, we remove our shoes as a sign of respect. That to me seems mostly that like this is somehow a sign of respect, that perhaps the idiom, the significance, the symbolism in it is lost in the English or our modern culture. But I see it most, it seems to indicate a sign of respect to remove one's shoes. Because like to this day... You remove your shoes. There's a saying that the priests offered the sacrifice or they were in the temple barefooted. I honestly can't confirm that because I just, I don't see that in Torah, but it could be a tradition and an understanding they had. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I don't know. But I do see that in my home, if you enter with your shoes, I'm going to paddle your behind (laughs) because, and I was raised, you drop your shoes at the door. You do not walk through someone's house that way. So that's kind of what I view it as, as a sign of respect, because the other things just don't hold the truth. Because if it was about being raw and grounded to him, experiencing everything that the you know, that the presence of Yahweh had, then why would it only be one shoe? And if it was him, it could be him removing his shame, perhaps rolling the reproach away, because the man who shamed. The woman and did not he couldn't he didn't redeem her. Then he had to remove his shoe. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, that doesn't seem to seem in this case because Joshua could not redeem the people. But that could also be what it is. It's like Joshua, you remove your shoe because you can't redeem these people. You can't redeem your brethren. You can't deem, redeem the brother, the bride of Messiah. You can't redeem the children of Israel who are the bride of Messiah. Some of them are. Not all of them will make it as the bride. That actually, that's kind of an interesting thought because we're commanded in Torah that you take the woman removes his shoe. And here Yahweh says, take off your shoe. And who is our Redeemer? It is Yeshua. He is the one who actually can redeem us. Joshua couldn't. Huh, interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Send me a message on Facebook, God's Little Hummingbird. I love you all. Have a super blessed day faith. Okay.